decided that we would just start moving through the Bible, kind of a book at a time, and the books a verse at a time. We've done three. We've done Mark, 1 Corinthians, and Colossians. I think it took two years to get through three books. Uh, the reason that we do that, one is for me, because I don't spend any time during the week trying to figure out what to talk about. But the other reason is for you. It, to me, it gives me, it gives us a fuller view of truth versus me just coming up with a message every week. You wind up hearing the same thing after about three weeks because that's about all the bullets I have in my gun. So we're going to start with Matthew. And we're gonna, it's 28 chapters. We're going to work through it a little bit at a time. Today we're going to look at the genealogy, which is just incredibly insightful and exciting. Uh, Matthew was written to Jews. Matthew's trying to establish the identity of Jesus as the son of Abraham, that is, as a Jew, and as the son of David, someone who falls. Uh, one of the prophecies of the Messiah was he would come from the house of David or from the line of David. So Matthew's trying to establish that Jesus fits both of these criteria. He is a Jew, and he's in the family of David. Uh, his, his genealogy, I would say, is not biological. It's more theological. He skips generations. Uh, the word that's translated father, if you have the NIV, actually means ancestor of, so it could be grandparent or great-grandparent. Uh, descent is traced through through the fathers, not through mothers. No offense, but it really didn't matter who your mom was. Everything hinged on who your father was, and so you'll see father, father, father all the way through. That establishes who you are legally, and that pretty much whoever your parents are or whoever your dad is, that situates you in life uh, moving forward, Matthew, it's called telescoping the genealogy, and he just he handpicks names, so there's plenty of generations that he leaves out. He likes the number 14, that's two times the number seven, which is the number of completeness. And so he's just he's kind of playing around there, trying to show that Jesus fulfills some things, that he's the son of Abraham and he's the son of David. We are not going to go through each of these people. Most of them we don't know, and there's no mention of them in the Old Testament anyway. It is interesting that he chooses, outside of Mary, he mentions four women. He mentions four people who are mothers of these particular sons. It's interesting because, one, again, I just said it doesn't matter who your mother is. That doesn't establish anything. He's trying to show that Jesus is the son of Abraham and the son of David, and it doesn't matter who your mom is. It matters who your dad is. And I said he didn't include everyone. It's not an exhaustive family tree, so he intentionally included these women. And if you believe the Bible is inspired by God, then God inspired him to include the names of these women in this genealogy, which doesn't serve his point at all. And so it's just curious to me why these four women, are why, why are they included in general, and then why specifically are these four included? So that's what we're going to look at. I'm just going to jump around to a few verses instead of reading the whole thing. You'll just laugh at me trying to pronounce the names anyway. So Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, their twins, whose mother was Tamar. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. So if you're a Jew and you hear Tamar, you're going to think back. She occurs, she has a story, Genesis 38. That's the only time she occurs in the Old Testament. I'm going to, it's going to take me a bit to tell this story, and it makes me pretty uncomfortable to tell it. So you just hang in there with me. I'm going to leave out some details. You can go back and read them if you want. So Judah's one of the 12 sons of Israel. Or, or Jacob, he has three sons of his own. Er, E-R, there's a name for some of you who are considering. Onan and Shelah, S-H-E-L-A-H. Judah, being a good Jewish father, gets a wife for his oldest son, Er, and her name is Tamar. She's a Gentile. They get married. The Bible says that Er is wicked, and so God puts him to death. Uh, there's a custom 
at this point in Genesis that actually becomes a law in Deuteronomy. It's called Leveret Marriage, L-E-V-I-R-A-T-E. And so uh, I have a brother, and what would happen if I didn't actually have three sons, but if I didn't have any sons, and we lived during this time, I walk out and I get hit by a camel and I die, then Misty's, then my brother Micah would, would take Misty into his home, and the first son that they have would be counted as mine. So the first son between Micah and Misty is counted as David's son because everything passes through sons. And if there are no sons, then my name dies out. And that's, and that's a huge deal if everything is, if your inheritance is literal dirt. If you don't have a son to pass this dirt onto, then you're done. It's like you never live. And so there's this custom in Genesis. It becomes law in Deuteronomy. It says this is the responsibility of brothers. If someone's left, if you leave a widow who doesn't have any male heirs. So Judah, his responsibility is to give Tamar to his middle son, Onan. And he does that. And Onan is wicked as well. And he dies without leaving any male children. And then Judah's thinking, well, I'm 0 for 2 with Tamar. I've got one son left. So let's push pause. And he tells her, I'll give you to Shelah when it's time but for now you just live in my house as a widow. He has no intention of doing this. He's afraid. Time goes on. Shayla marries someone else. Tamar realizes Judah's never, he's not going to honor, it's not just honoring his word, it's doing what's right. He's not going to do either of those things. Judah's wife dies, and after a period of time, he goes to a sheep shearing event, and in these times, that's a big deal, big celebration, sheep shearing. Uh, Tamar hears about this, and so she dresses up like a prostitute and puts herself in the middle of the road. She covers herself completely. Judah sees her, uh, doesn't know who it is. He employs her. She says, what are you going to pay me? He says, I'm going to pay you a goat. And she says, what's the proof that I have that you're going to pay me a goat? And Judah gives her uh, some personal effects, a staff and this thing called a, a seal that he would use to show that a document was his. So it's personal to him and only him. Tamar gets pregnant. She goes home. Judah goes home, never knows it's her. Three months later, he gets word that Tamar's pregnant, and he says, like all good father-in-laws, burn her to death because it's, it, she's not married, so that's, it's adultery. And so she needs to be burned to death. And Tamar sends to Judah and says, the father of my baby gave me these things and, and sends to him this staff and this seal and he recognizes it as his. He's convicted. He says, she's more righteous than I am. He brings her into his home, allows her to live as a widow. And she has these two sons who are the ancestors of Jesus. So that wonderful story of family values that you all want to talk about at lunch, I'm sure you wonder, why? Why? Of in, of, you're trying to show this guy, Jesus, son of Abraham, son of David, using the name Tamar does nothing to further your cause. Why in the world do you put it in there? Why? That's the only story anybody's going to come up with. I was thinking about that, and one thing that that story to me shows is the sovereignty of God. He had decided this is the way this thing is going to work. My son is going to come from the tribe of Judah. That's where the Messiah is going to come from the tribe of Judah, and not even the wickedness of Judah can prevent that from happening. I'm as big a believer in free will as anybody. I 100% think our choices matter. I don't think God ever overrides our will. I don't think we're 
puppets on a string. We're not chess pieces that he's moving around on a board. We 100% have freedom, and that freedom is real. And to me, the comfort is he's able to work with wicked, despicable choices and still accomplish his purposes in the end. You can see that in the crucifixion, which was a heinous sin, killing an innocent man, and it still accomplished the purposes of God. And for some of you today, you may find yourself in a situation where you feel like the forces of wickedness, literally the forces of wickedness, are lined up against you, that they're preventing you from moving forward. And the, the encouragement to you when you hear the word Tamar is it doesn't matter. God is bigger than all of those things. He is able to accomplish the things that he has decided to accomplish. Are there things, uh, I don't know how to say it other than uh, they're weighty in your heart. They sink to the bottom of your heart. These aren't just thoughts that you have. It would be nice if God did this or I think God might do that. I'm talking about conviction deep in your heart. As sure as you know your name, you know God has spoken this to me. Those are the things that it doesn't matter what you see in your circumstance. If, if, If he said, I'm going to do it. He's going to do it. He said he's going to come back, and he's going to destroy his enemies, and he is going to. And it doesn't matter what we see on Fox News or CNN. It doesn't matter what we read in the newspaper. It doesn't matter what we experience in our community. He said, I'm going to do this, and nobody can stop him. He said nothing external to us can separate us from his love. And so that means nothing can separate you from his love except you. Nothing external to you can do that. That's a, that's a guarantee. That can sink down into the bottom of your heart. And it doesn't matter what's going on in your life. You know that that is true. He can, we just sang this song about overcoming. He overcomes all of those things. And again, if there's personal revelation that you have, again, something that God has spoken to you, and again, as sure as you know your name, you know you're going to get married. You know you're going to have kids. You know you're going to plant a church or go to Africa or start a company or Whatever it is, the, this revelation that you have about your life, if it's, if it's weighty like that, if it's an anchor that's dropped down deep into your heart, you can rest assured he's going to accomplish his purposes. Salmon, that's how I'm going to say his name, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. If you're a Jew and you hear Rahab, you immediately think of Joshua. Rahab is a prostitute. You see a theme there. She lives in Jericho. Joshua sends some spies into Jericho to do some recon work before they take that city. These spies are housed by Rahab. The king of Jericho finds out. She goes to Rahab and says, hey, where are those spies? And she says, they did come here, but I've sent them on their way. She's actually hidden them in the roof of her house. So she's protecting these enemies in her home. And in exchange for that, these Israelites say, well, you and your people, you stay in this apartment, you stay in this home, and when we come and destroy the city, everyone in this home gets to live. And Rahab says, okay. And so that's what happens. You remember the story. They march around the walls. The walls come crashing down. The Israelites go in. They take out the entire city except Rahab and her folks who are in her uh, her apartment and in her home. Those people uh, she are preserved and actually become part of Israel. So if you're a if you're a Jew and you hear Rahab, that's the story that you're thinking of. Two times she's mentioned in the New Testament. Hebrews eleven thirty one says this by faith the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. James two twenty five, in the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off. 
in a different direction. Rahab, if you're a Jew, is synonymous with faith. And you see kind of two elements of faith, both elements of faith. For us, a lot of times these are so intertwined, we can't separate them. So for discussion, it might be helpful. She takes a huge risk. She puts something on the table. She puts something on the line that is hers. That's her safety. In welcoming these spies, I mean, that, that's treason. She's comforting or aiding the enemy. These people who have said, we're going to destroy your city, and she is bringing them into her home. That's a huge risk on her part. If she gets caught, if those guys are discovered in her roof, she's done. She's going to be killed for that. That's one aspect of faith, risk, putting something on the line that you currently possess. And usually it's something close to us. It's safety. It's money. It's opportunity. It's something like that. And God says, will you risk that for me? And then you also see the other side of faith, which is trust. She set, she puts her trust and the safe for her safety and the safety of her family in these guys who are strangers to her. She doesn't know them. The safest thing to do would be, all right, I know these guys are coming. I think they're going to win, and so we're leaving. We, we're going to take a family vacation whenever it is that we see these guys coming and start marching around our city, and she doesn't do that. She chooses to trust their word. She stays in their home, and they actually they are preserved. Both of those are elements of faith. There's risk, putting something on the line that you already have, and there's trust, believing God for something you don't yet have. And you may find yourself today kind of in one of those two places where God is saying, I need you to be willing to put this on the line for me. You may or may not lose it, but are you willing to risk it out of obedience to him? It's not about being reckless. It's about being faithful. If I've got to give this up in order to obey you, then I'm going to give it up in order to obey you. You may find yourself on the other side of that coin where God is saying, can you stretch for me in this area? Can you believe me to do something that you don't see Right now, again, it's not risking something you currently have. It's reaching for something that you don't have at the moment. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. You hear Ruth, you think of the book. So, real quick, Naomi's married to a guy named Elimelech. They live in Bethlehem. They have two sons. There's a famine in Bethlehem, so they go to a Gentile area called Moab. Elimelech dies, and Naomi marries both of her sons to Moabite women, to Gentile women, Ruth and a girl named Orpah, O-R-P-A-H. In time, both of Naomi's sons die as well, within 10 years. So Naomi is now a widow, and both of her sons have died. If you're a woman in this time, and you don't have a father, which you don't once you get married, you're released from your father's house and brought into your husband's house. So this relationship is done, you to your dad. You don't have a husband, widow, and you don't have male sons. You've got nothing, very precarious position. Naomi has nothing. She's in a foreign country. She hears that things are going well in Bethlehem, and so she says, I'm going to go home, and her daughters-in-law say, we're coming with you. And she says, don't. I've got nothing to offer you. I'm, I'm old, I'm child. If I were to have children today, would you really wait for them to get old enough to marry? Don't be silly. Don't come with me. And Orpah says, okay, I'm not going to come with you. And Ruth, that classic verse that you hear at weddings everywhere, don't tell me to leave. Where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. She didn't say that to her husband. She said that to her mother-in-law. 
that maybe changes your relationship with your mother-in-law a little bit. That's who she said that to. I'm with you. Naomi had nothing to offer, nothing at all to offer Ruth. And Ruth is risking her, I mean, she any possibilities Ruth has for a full and fruitful life, she is risking and saying, Naomi, I'm sticking with you. Her best shot at fullness of life is to stay where she is and start over. And that's why Naomi says stay. Otherwise, she's stuck to Naomi. She's part of Naomi's family at that point. There are no prospects. They move back to Bethlehem. She meets a guy named Boaz who actually is extended family. He marries Ruth. They have a son. And this son, Obed, is given to Naomi. It's that leveret piece again where this son born to Ruth is considered Naomi's son. It's a complete reversal. If you hear Ruth, what you're thinking is there's not a better picture of divine love than that. That's the best human picture of divine love you're going to find in the Old Testament. You have someone who has nothing to offer. That's us. We have nothing at all to offer. And God says, I'll stick with you. You give me your nothing, and I'll stick with you. I'll give you everything I have, and you don't have to give me anything in return. That's the gospel. When, you, when, the, when the Jews heard Ruth, they're thinking that story. And for some of you that this morning, you need that to resonate in your heart. You need the truth of that to go deep into your heart. You've got nothing to offer. and he know, You're Naomi. You're bereft of every good thing. And what God says to you is, I'm sticking with you. I'm going to stick with you. You stick with me, I stick with you. You be my people, and I'll be your God. Last, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. We don't even get her name. Her name is Bathsheba. You remember the story. David, he's supposed to be out fighting, and for whatever reason, he's not. He's on the roof of his house. He sees Bathsheba taking a bath, and he goes... Well, let's bring her over. And so his people bring Bathsheba over. She gets pregnant. We have a problem at that point because she's not David's wife. She's Uriah's wife. So David concocts some schemes to bring Uriah back from the battlefield to get him to spend time with his wife. Uriah won't do it. He says, listen, my men are fighting. It's wrong for me to be enjoying my wife, and so I'm not going to do that. So now David's in a crunch. So he has this idea of, creating this battle strategy whose sole purpose is for Uriah to be killed. And his commander, Joab, executes it. Uriah dies, and according to the Bible, David's a murderer. He didn't pull the trigger. He didn't shoot the bow, whatever. But he set these events in motion, whose, the purpose of which was for Uriah to die. Uriah dies. David's guilty of murder. David brings Bathsheba into his home. I don't know if people are not good with math, but at, somehow he's thinking that it's going to be legit. That this baby, that everything's fine. He's married Bathsheba, and so this baby is legitimate. Nathan, the prophet, confronts David, says, you've done this. David, when he's confronted, immediately repents, and it's deep repentance. The baby does die. David repents. There's an assumption that Bathsheba repents. We don't know that, but they're restored. They have a baby named Solomon who becomes, behind David, the second greatest king in the history of Israel and an ancestor to Jesus. If you're hearing that story as a Jew, and they're not even using Bathsheba's name, they're reminding you this is the wife of Uriah, this relationship that was adulterous and murderous 
from the beginning. And yet God chose that kid. David had other sons. He had other wives. There are plenty of places God could have gone to extend his, this line. There are plenty of other kids whose name could have been David was the father of who became an, an ancestor of Jesus. God chose Solomon. And it's interesting if you read, I think it's in 2 Samuel 12, 24 and 25, it says when David went to Bathsheba, comforted her, she became pregnant, she had a child. David and Bathsheba loved his child and named him Solomon. It says the Lord spoke to Nathan the prophet. God loved his child as well and told Nathan to call him Jedidiah, which means the Lord loves. For some of you this morning, you get God forgives you, technically. But it's like uh, when you're in school and you erase the answer with a pencil and you can still see the outline, that's what you think. Well, he's forgiven me technically, but the outline of that, it's still on me. I still have the scarlet letter, whatever that happens to be. The traces of that sin, they still stick to me. And so you're walking a half step slow. Your head's hanging down. You assume that whatever plans or purposes God has for you, they're shot. You blew it when you did whatever it is that you did. And to not minimize whatever that is, let's say it's as bad as you think it was. This picture, did you kill anybody? Even if you killed anybody, here we go. Full restoration. It's not just technical forgiveness. It's full restoration. And you need to hear that this morning. Yes, you've sinned. But if you've repented of your sin, when God forgives, he forgives completely. There's no outline. There's no trace. It's white out. It's completely blotted out. He doesn't hold that against you moving forward. From his perspective, you're fully restored. Again, he chose Solomon. He could have, there was multiple boys he could have chosen who were legitimate sons of David who didn't have all of this associated with them. And he picked Solomon, I think, to make a point. Any of us, for any of us, it's not just that we can be chosen. Yes, we can be Solomon. We can also be David and Bathsheba. And we can be fully redeemed and fully restored. That's the scandal of grace. He chose the worst incident in David's life and fully restored him and restored Bathsheba. Pretty powerful stuff. If you find yourself there this morning and you say, I'm, that's me. I think the word that you need to hear is full restoration, not just technical forgiveness. He doesn't erase with an eraser where you can still see an outline of your sin. He blots it out with white out. So there's no trace of that sin from his perspective any longer. There's no guilt. There's no shame. There's no condemnation. Let's pray. So there are four options. You're, you need to hear Tamar. God's able, 100% capable of accomplishing his purposes in your life, even though the circumstances say no. You're ra- you need to hear Rahab. Take a risk. You need to be willing to, to 
put that thing that's precious to you on the line, the thing that you hold most dear, be willing to put that on the line for him. Or you need to believe to stretch for something that you don't yet have. Maybe you can't quite see it. But he's asking you to believe him for it. You need to hear Ruth. You've got nothing to offer, and he's 100% good with that. You're desolate and desperate and broken, and he says, I'm going to choose to stick with you. That needs to sink in your heart that he's made a choice to stay with you. And some of you, it's Bathsheba is what you need to hear. That full restoration is possible. You get that God has forgiven you. You don't get that he's restored you. And so you're walking with, you're sitting at the kids' table in the other room. And you don't have to. So Lord, my prayer is by your spirit, you administer into each of our hearts, the men and women and the young men and the young women in this room. God, what do we most need to hear from you? In these next five or six minutes, what's the work that you desire to do in us? You included those women in that genealogy. And you drew us here this morning to hear those names because there's work that you want to do. And so we want to say yes to that. Even now, we talked last week about kind of this tension between believing God for what's instantaneous and trusting him for a process and ministry coming forward for prayer that's believing God to do work instantaneously he can do a lot of work in a short amount of time I want to encourage you this morning to believe him to do that in your heart in your mind and in your life in Jesus name amen we're going to close with ministry I'm actually going to come up and dismiss y'all in a little bit so don't don't get up and go Bo's got a song we'll have ministry teams up front if you guys would go ahead and come forward ministry teams and if we have some ministry elders here if y'all would come as well.